Welcome to the A Sound Effect Podcast. My name is Aspen Andersen and I'm the founder of asoundeffect.com. In this game music special, we dive into the score for Trek to Yomi, a side-scrolling samurai action game developed by Flying Wild Hog and published by Devolver Digital. Jennifer Walton talks to composer Cody Matthew Johnson of Imperia Sound and Music about his inspiration for the game score, some of the traditional Japanese instruments that Cody chose, and how he collaborated with the musicians and their influence on the score. We also share clips from the game score, and Cody talks about what went into creating those tracks. Guitar Designed Volume 2 by 344 Audio uses raw acoustic guitar recordings to design various futuristic and horrifying sound effects. Stones and Debris by Just Sound Effects features a large variety of movements and shattering of stones, rocks, bricks, and more. Bell Risers by Celine Woodburn is a collection of eerie cinematic risers made with bells. Designed Atmospheres by Gregor Quendel features cinematic sci-fi sound effects, ambiences, drones, pads, textures, and more. Can you guess what's making the sound you'll be hearing in a second? Submit your guess at asoundeffect.com forward slash quiz and get three chances to win a one-year subscription to the excellent cloud sound effects platform Soundly. Here's that mystery sound. Hey, this is Jennifer Walden for a sound effect. I'm here with multimedia composer, music producer, sound designer, and multi-instrumentalist Cody Matthew Johnson. We're talking about the game score on Trek to Yomi. The game is black and white and very cinematic. It's like playing a movie straight out of the Japanese cinema vault. Cody is a founder of Imperia Sound and Music, a full-service end-to-end audio solutions company for video games and other interactive media, and he's currently scoring the Sony China Hero Project, Lost Soul Aside, developed by AltaZero Games. Hey there, Cody. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about the score on Trek to Yomi. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled and overjoyed to be here to talk about everyone's favorite topic, traditional Japanese music. (laughs) Well, I loved the score. It's so good and just 
different. You know, it's not music that you hear all the time. It's beautiful and wonderful for a game score, but also in its own uh-huh. right, it's just really good music. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's it was a I appreciate I appreciate that a lot, you know. Uh, it never it never gets old hearing people actually uh, listen to your music and then appreciate it. Uh, so much of what we do is like the goal is to not be noticed, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so to to hear someone go, oh no, I listened to that, I resonated with that. Very very uh, uh, humbling, and I appreciate that. But yeah, this this was a cool opportunity to do something a little bit a little bit unique. I think a lot of games. Um, they, they have the, the thing that they're focusing on, whether it's like immersive gameplay or world building, or if it's combat or, or something like that. And there's, there's usually a, a well-defined system in which like dramatically where the music can live. And if you go too far outside of that, I think it, you end up pulling players out of the experience. If, if the music is sounding too good or too, too unique, I should say, or too, uh, noticeable, you can pull people out of that, that kind of immersive hole we're trying to get them into and so but with this it was like i think the concept was so high that everything we could do to really sell um you know this this love letter and this this interesting combination between edo period and the love letter to akira kurosawa and all these things all at the same time it it seemed like a cool opportunity to lean into that as as hard as we could and so, how did you get involved with Trek to Yomi? So, Trek to Yomi, um, I, I started a, well, a while back, after I started scoring some video games, I started an interactive audio solutions company. We basically do end-to-end audio for video games. Cool stuff. Everyone loves that. And um, so, we do sound design and dialogue and music and whatnot. And we were actually in Tokyo at the Tokyo Game Show, just meeting people we've worked with and getting up to no good as you do. <laughs> and um, we met Leonard Menciari there and he at the time was just a solo dev. He just built a vertical slice of a game. It was not called Trek Yomi at the time. I think it was like Ronin Z or just just a, a mysterious letter thrown at the end of the word Ronin. And um, so he showed it to us and it looked astonishingly similar to where it ended up. But of course it was just this tiny demo uh, of just an idea of using very Kurosawa-like camera angles and trying to get a very cinematic look, but not, you know, not, not 2020s cinematic look, but truly a 1940s, 1950s Akira Kurosawa cinematic look and feel while also having a, a pretty interesting gameplay style. It was still, uh, the combat was still side-scrolling at that point to like 2.5D. And it, it, the soul of the game didn't change much from that demo. Um, and we had talked to him, this was like 2019. This was like September of 2019. And so we stayed in touch with him for a long time and and just kind of bounced ideas off of him and eventually wrote some demo tracks before he started looking for a publisher. And then Devolver got very excited. And then they were excited about the music that we had done uh, just as kind of just a part of his exploratory of the creative for this IP. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up getting into principal actual writing and maybe... Uh, February of last year. So it was almost like 18 months before we we actually started getting deep into that. But, but a lot of research went in up until that point. So that's that's kind of the short of how Trek to Yomi came to be. It was quite a journey. And so how did you prepare for writing this score? You mentioned Kurosawa. Were you going back and listening to those film scores? Uh, were you also listening to traditional Japanese music? Yeah, a little, little column A, a little column B. We had a lot of time to, to 
talk about what the game is and where its influences come from and what it's inspired by. Um, and clearly there's some things, if you know Kurosawa films, and if you're a fan of Japanese cinema, you might also know Fumio Hayasaka, which is a collaborator and composer on a lot of Kurosawa films. Um, and his music is nothing like what we did for Trek to Yomi because he was using an orchestra and interjecting some Japanese instruments. So of course we went back to all these films, the Rushamon, Seven Samurai, and watching them, not just to appreciate the cinema, but to try and learn from them and get a little bit deeper and try and understand like dramatic devices and musical devices. Mm -hmm. And so we took a lot of inspiration from that dramatically and musically. And so that, that was, that was a big part of trying to find this balance of like music versus silence versus treating the film like a six hour movie that we're scoring almost. Um, and then of course did so much research on traditional Japanese music. Cause, um, I, I love kind of exploring music from different cultures and Yoko, my collaborator had a deep background on Japanese music already, but we kind of went the extra mile to, to learn as much as we could in the time we had before production started to research the music systems and, you know, why one instrument would be used for a part of the game and not the other based on kind of cultural dynamics at the time. Some, you know, instruments were only used and performed for like ceremonies or royalty while other instruments were more accessible to the common people of the time. So there was a lot more than just, oh, this is a flute. It can play these notes. That's cool. But like, why did people only use these notes? Oh, because they only had access to these instruments that could play these. And how does that affect where we take the music and how does that affect the themes and what scales and music says. So it was this very deep research period of understanding a lot of the why behind uh, the music before we even got too deep into it. So it was nice to spend all that time doing exploratory thinking and research and a little bit of theme writing and things like that. And so the scale for Japanese music, that's different from the scale for Western music, right? They have more than just 12 notes? Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting to experience a music system that is developed hundreds of years before uh, we, we think of Western music, right? Like, so the Western music that we, we all know and, and maybe have come to love in video games and, and elsewhere in the world, this 12 tone, you know, very uh, Western system of music has only been developed for the last handful of hundreds of years, right? It's not that ancient. But you look at something like Japanese music or some of the music systems from, from Asia, that's thousands of years old. And so it was very cool to explore that and see the differences therein. And you look at something like scales, and we had picked out a handful of scales that um, and like kind of music systems that were being used around the Edo period, but all vastly different from each other. Everyone thinks of like pentatonic scales and you're, you know, five notes. And to us, it's like, yeah, that's, that's the blues, you know, that's, what is it? Four chords and the truth. Um, <laughs> but that's very, very different in Japan where there's these very microtonal, like detunes on some notes. And, and so it's like 20 cents lower or what have you. And some of the, the scales represent different things. So when we were looking at characters, we go, okay, should we use the Hirojoshi scale here, the Gakujoshi scale, or, um, you know, can, is this a scale that is even playable on a shakuhachi, or do we need to use a koto here? And what what does that represent? So there's a lot more to the music system than just the music, but there's this whole additional cultural aspect of of 
kind of accessibility at the time, like what was available to people and why were certain scales used in different times. So completely different musical world, although it's, it's, it's always interesting to see see parallels, right? Because then you start thinking about frequency and what frequencies are harmonious with each other. And you start to see commonalities between music systems that were developed on completely different sides of the world because science, right? Yeah. And uh, we, we love science. And so that, that was cool to kind of organically discover all of that during this process too. Okay, so how did you shoehorn these more complex scales into logic, right? Because logic in any kind of MIDI is based on Western music's 12-note scale. So how did you how did you make that work when writing the temp music? It was very painful and a uh, long process. I think, you know, at first, we're trying to figure all this out. And so luckily, there's some very intelligent just contact instruments that we were using to write for the instruments we would record later on that you could go in and say, okay, this is roughly the scale, right? It's maybe it's C, D, E flat, F, whatever. But that G happens to be detuned by like 12 cents. Like historically, that's what, it, you know, in, the, in their scale, the specific scale we're using. So we, we could go in and just in, in the back end of our sampler, just detune that G. Just, just enough to get it close to what we were wanting. Um, and then, so we were very mindful, taking a lot of very meticulous notes, you know, my markers or my notes. I'm saying this section of the music we're using here, Joshi, like, and I would write the notes in. I'm like, okay, it's like that, that are, those are the notes we can, we can work with here. And of course, like you can take some liberties here and there. It's like, okay, for this one section, cause it's, we still gotta be dramatic. It's still a video game. We need to, we need to speak to the knowledge base the players already have, but still challenge them. So we might be a little more fluid and like come out of that scale to go to another scale for a part of a cinematic and then back to it. Cause we're hinting at another theme that might have been used in a different scale. So in that case, we're thinking of it as maybe a different player that's on the stage with them at the same time, but very difficult. Uh, luckily any MIDI instruments we used in this game ended up getting recorded. So even towards the end, we're like, all right, I can't, like it's so, we have to write so much music so fast. And it's like, I, am I detuning all these G's? I'm like, we're going to record it later. I think we all understand that we're going to record it later. And so I'm like, okay, I'm just going to tune logic to, or uh, a contact to 432. And I'm like, that's as close as we're going to get because we're just going to record it later. So we made sure that where necessary, we're applying those microtonalities and pitch adjustments and also detuning logic to 432 instead of 440. And getting as close as we can in the box before we go to the recording stage. But then on the recording stage, all the players are like, okay, just so you know, like my instruments at 430 and everything else is at 432. <laughs> but then like that's at 440. I'm like, do just what's the most natural for your instrument. And uh, you know, there's, there's some times too, where like things clash, but they're, they're supposed to. And so you find these moments in the score where it's like, things are rubbing a little bit because we expect so much perfection in modern music production. I mean, if you listen to my other music, I'm like applying EQs, like different EQs on eighth notes and quarter notes. And hit, like, it's a different style of music, but um, we're stepping away from that, trying to keep it organic. And so you get these, these imperfections and these, these harmonic rubbings. You know, the Shinobue player, the Shinobue is a very commoner, like a commoner's flute. And so 
no one expects Shinobue players to be you know, these these amazing instrumentalists, and so it naturally, because of the imperfect nature of the instrument, part of the character is is being not so perfect, and so we we have all these things that like put into a blender, and it and it comes out sounding so beautiful and interesting and and compelling uh, because of all those those imperfections. And so I think if you like make the rules ahead of time for what you're going to do, uh, as long as you stick to them, I don't think you can falter too much. It, it takes a little bit of extra effort and time for sure, but I think a big reason why I'm so proud of this score is because we did we set those rules and we stuck to our guns. And I think at the end of the day, it ended up ended up being fairly compelling and, and as accurate as we could be. So you roughed out all these tracks like as best as you could, and then did you? hire an orchestrator and what was that conversation like yeah yeah. good good question uh so we did this in batches right i had some milestones along the way and so the first milestone we were trying to approach we you know we just had to write music and record it very difficult and so the the system of music notation for these traditional players is not five lines and a bunch of tiny black dots but like that's how my brain thinks so it very much so was like, okay, well, let's get it on the paper in a way so we can read it and then we can talk to the players and see what they're comfortable with. And some of the players were fantastic, absolutely amazing musicians. Um, the Koto player we worked with, Yuki Yasuda, she's here in, in LA. Um, she's amazing. And so she was able to read the notation that we had, Western notation, because we're working in Pro Tools. Like we, we have to, we're, it's a video game. We got to work to a click a little bit. We need a roadmap here. Yeah. And so we have this notation. She's like, I can read this just like straight up and know what's going on with my instrument, but I would prefer to write it out in the Japanese notation for Koto and perform it like that, referencing like your bars and beats and stuff, because I feel like that would be a, a more like honorable way to perform the instrument for this game. We're like, we love that. But she would she would look at this and be like, okay, this section right here, like I know what you were doing in the MIDI, but what if we do it this way? This is more accurate to what would be expressed on the instrument. I'm like, anytime you say that, Yuki, that's what we're gonna do. Awesome. Uh, and you know that we we and during those recording sessions too, after the first milestone, um, she like started doing these really interesting things. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna mute everything but the drums, and I just want you to go off, just go for it. And so she did all these really interesting like effects and um, like aleatoric things, things that you know no one has really sampled before. And so she like did all this really interesting stuff, and we recorded it through the. Signal chain we did because we we very much so tried to go for like a 1940s sounding signal chain, and then I was able to take all that stuff and all these jamming and stuff she did and use that as source material for a lot of the stuff later in the game. So instead of like trying to write it, have someone perform it, we're taking performances and allowing that to kind of inform us about how to use the instruments later. So it was this. At first, it was like this hard push into to trying to notate it and all these things, but then we were able to go a little more organically into the, into the future on this game, saying like, okay, well, maybe part of these sessions is just like giving them our music and letting them jam. And so we, we kind of had this band approach at some point where we're, 
we're going a little, a little more rock and roll where we're like sampling and we don't have sheet music anymore and they're playing things by ear. We're just playing them phrases and ideas and themes and they're, they're riffing on them. So it, it took on a little bit of a life of its own where we were able to gather all this source material. And, and I felt that was a much more effective way to, to keep it as, uh, you know, close to, to that, that influence of, of keeping it respectful and honorable and as close to kind of traditional Edo period music as possible was keeping the source as close to it. Um, so that, that was, I felt like that was kind of a, a fun way to, to pivot, not mid project, but to use that as a tool as, as we continued through the project. I love it. I absolutely do because they know all the nuances of the instrument that they play and just allowing them to work with their instrument within this outline that you've given them. I think that's brilliant. Uh, Yeah, it definitely felt appropriate to do it that way than to try and be this, this middleman between, you know, the knowledge base and the application of the game, but to be more of a creative interpreter of some of these ideas and phrases and interpretations of the melodies that we had written. So tell me about your 1940s recording chain, signal chain. Yeah, so we were we're limited a little bit because this is all happening mid-pandemic, as I'm sure there's a lot of stories now where it's, how do you how do you make this happen in the way you want it to happen? during the most like catastrophic event of all of our collective lifetimes and a bit of a challenge. And so we're working here in LA. Some of our musicians are in Tokyo. There's people all over the place. And so we, we kind of came to this conclusion like, okay, we want to do it this way. I had this idea once of like, and we tested this of just taking the stereo mixes and like pumping them through a board, through some like old Oratone speakers and then re-recording that through like RCA microphones and then back through like a Fairchild and then back through the, you know, this board again. And um, my original idea was like, that would be the score. So all the mixes would be pumped through that. Cool. We eventually couldn't do that just because of time, COVID restrictions, a lot of different things. And so we ultimately settled like, well, the main focus here is on these like soloists and these instruments and, you know, shamisen, koto, flutes, um, Biwa, these are our main soloists for the game. And so we're thinking, okay, what's the, what's the best way to get that vibe? And drums, I forgot, taiko drums, of course. And what's the best way to get that vibe? And so um, we work at the Village here in Los Angeles, which is a, a quite famous studio. Um, there's some amazing sounding boards. Specifically, um, I love to record in Studio A at the Village. I think that Neve console they have in there is fantastic sounding um, because it has... It's a lot of character. It's not quite, you know, the a perfect 1940s image, but it, we're, we're trying to get as vintage as possible. And we're trying to get as close to a kind of a vintage um, and saturated, grainy, uh, an analog sound as possible. And so we, we drove that board super hot. Um, we used kind of as much of the kitchen sink that they had at the village possible with some some old old RCA microphones. We used the Fairchild, like I was saying. Used some. We tried out a bunch of different preamps that they had there, um, and it ended up sounding pretty great, especially with something like the shamisen. It's very percussive, very transient. If you've never heard a shamisen before, you'll hear this like slapping, like almost banjo-like sound. 
you look at the waveforms, it just looks like someone's banging on a snare drum. And so there's very, very, very transient. They're using a guitar pick that's about the size of your palm, and they're just beating on this uh, banjo-like instrument. And so naturally, that's like distorting the microphone. And I'm, everyone's like, wait, 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 we have to stop. I'm like, no, 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 let's, like, that's the vibe. So let's, let's put up another microphone. Let's, let's, you know, let's clip one of them and then we'll have another one as a safety just in case. And so a lot of the signal chain was just leaning into that sound where it's like, okay, no, you're like, that's, that's it. We want this to sound as, you know, we want it like, again, like, like I said, it's, it's a matter of both challenging the player and the listener, but also meeting them halfway so it doesn't interrupt their experience, right? Yeah. I think it would be a disservice to the game if we leaned so hard into that, that every time a shamisen played, it just like clipped and made people flinch. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a, a bit of a balance. And so we let those imperfections and that crackling and all that saturation and sometimes clipping and we push the preamps a little too hard, push the EQs a little too hard. Um, you know, use the Fairchild. Although, like, we're experimenting with some some different compressors. I mean, this Fairchild is just a great sounding transparent compressor. We're like, all right, we actually don't need this. We like rented this eight thousand dollar compressor. We're like, we don't need this. It doesn't it doesn't add anything. Uh, so it's not like we're just throwing things into the signal chain just just because. Um, we're definitely trying to get close to what could be uh, a sound recorded in nineteen forties. I think a lot of uh, those recordings too, Fumia Haisaka stuff is almost very mono. It's almost very like wall of sound. There's there's a lot of stereo presence there, but um, it's very very wall of sound. And so we tried to we tried to do that as much as possible. We we placed the musicians in the room. We marked it on the floor. Like okay, the koto player was sitting here. We had these microphones set up. We kept the room mics in the same exact place, and then we would sit the shamisen player like to the left of that. So like the stereo image was exactly the same and we didn't have to pan or move any of this stuff around when we're mixing because it's they played in the exact same room, just in opposite positions. So there was a natural stereo image and it actually worked out awesome. It sounded so good. And um, we tried like a bunch of different weird stuff too. I was like thinking like, well, if a Koto player was like playing in a village, you wouldn't be standing next to her uh, or him, sorry, or they, while they're playing. And so there was like a booth in the room. And so I we put a microphone back in the room, you know, way far off, totally out of phase with everything else. But that was the best sounding microphone. And so we used that a ton. So we're just thinking so hard about just how these instruments would be translated, not just capturing the most pristine, high quality version of these soloists. So it's Again, very long-winded, but kind of a, a little nugget insight into the philosophy we're trying to capture when we're going into recording these. Because again, you know, just any opportunity to lean into the concept we wanted to try and do, at least experiment with and see if it worked. So Cody, in your bio, I love that it says your approach is an irreverent and unapologetic fusion of traditional musical styles and electronics with hard-hitting modern production. Uh, did that electronics edge ever make its way into the score? Uh, you, you hit um, chapter five and six. Things get weird in five and six. And that's definitely, it might not be hard hitting. Um, although I, I always use as much of that knowledge base and experience as possible, right? I like, I, I love, I love gear. I have, I have gas. I have gear acquisition syndrome, just like many <laughs> people do. And, um, and so whenever I have an opportunity to infuse that, like like this recording stuff I'm talking about is is an opportunity to infuse 
more than just music into the music. Yeah. And I think, I think the translation of music is equally as important as the music itself, right? Because we're so used to the listening experience and things like that. So making music sound good and interesting is as compelling for me as just writing an, an awesome melody. So, um, which I don't claim that I do all that often. I think my thing is more, more about, uh, the emotional context of frequency and, and loudness over time. But, um, when it comes to chapter five and six is when we got, things got weird. I could, I could really, cause we're, we're entering this place. That's, you know, Yomi, it's, it's this purgatory, like afterlife place. And that's not a spoiler. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm allowed to say it. Game's out. Watch the trailer. You know, it's called Trek to Yomi. That's where we're going. And um, <laughs> and so it's like this afterlife place and it's weird and it's abstract and it's dangerous and it's spooky at times and horrific at other times. Uh, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful at times too. And so it's just this, this, it's, you know, it's not heaven or hell. It's just the place after. And so it contains, you know, the full range of what you can imagine an afterlife could, could contain. And it's like, what does music sound like there? And it's like, well, it sounds kind of like anything. So we had done research and stumbled upon gagaku, which is a, a form of music in an ensemble that kind of came to Japan in like the seventh century. And it's been used for like ceremonies and royalty. And it often represents like the afterlife. And so we're leaning into that. I'm like, this is cool. This is cool. And in our early demo experimentations, I took these just recordings I'd found online and just time stretch them and just Paul stretch and any, you know, different kind of granulation stretching I could find and created these really strange and otherworldly sounding pads and beds and things. I was like, okay, that's a cool idea. But again, like, how do we go a little bit farther? And so in Trek to Yomi, as you go through chapter five and six, you're literally going farther down. You're going deeper into Yomi. And um, I love the idea of sound traveling away from you through like Doppler effect. And so I was like, okay, what would happen if like, you were traveling farther away from a sound source, deeper into this underworld, and you could say like maybe like Gagaku was still in the world of the living, what would that sound like as you traveled farther away from it? It's like, okay, these sounds would actually, you know, they'd redshift, they would get longer, the frequencies would get, you know, uh, stretched out and the pitch would drop. And I'm like, okay, let's try that. And so started experimenting with this and then you, you run into the issue of like, okay, we're losing fidelity now, we're losing transients, we're losing top end. How do you fix that? I'm like, all right, higher sample rates. I'm like, okay. What, but what, what else can I do? I'm like, ultrasonic microphones. I'm like, okay, that's cool, that's cool, that's cool. And so that was the plan. And I was like, ultrasonic microphones um, and, and high sample rates. I did more research trying to find like kind of acoustic information on a Gugaku. I saw these like frequency response curves from Stanford. Thank you, Stanford. Shout out to Stanford <laughs> Ethnomusicology Department, just studying this stuff. And showing like some of the instruments in the gagaku, the hichiriki, which is like a reed instrument, and the show, which is like a, a windpipe kind of hand organ, wind organ instrument, their their frequency response, like their overtones, go way up into like 80k. I'm like, all right, that's where the money's at. I want to know what that sounds like. And so I was like, okay, this makes sense. We have the ultrasonic microphones. We have 192k. Like when we slow this down, we'll have all this 
additional information to work with. We can really create some interesting sounds. And it's like, okay, this is not only a style of music that rarely heard by anyone around the world, um, let alone was not very accessible in Japan either, right? Because this is for royalty. This is court music. Right. This is not commoners music. So not only has it not been heard around the world, but wasn't that accessible in Japan up until the last maybe a couple hundred years. And I was like, this is cool, but now we're going to showcase and be able to hear frequencies that have literally never been able to hear because 20,000 hertz is the, the ceiling for human hearing. And we're talking about triple that, right? 20 to 40, 40 to 80. And so we're, we're like, okay, concept's getting weirder. This is cool. This is, this is all, this is what I'm talking about with the modern production stuff is leaning into that, that weirdness, the tech of it to, to create something interesting. It's not tech for tech's sake, but it's tech as a tool. Yeah. So the final step here was like, I did some more research on Gagaku and they sit in these, the usually sets of three, if not more, but in a triangle. So three people at the top and three people um, at each corner. And so I'm like, okay, what would be, what would happen if we put a microphone, like an ambisonic microphone right in the center? And I was like, all right, but we'd have gaps. I'm like, okay, let's throw out the, the, you know, concentric triangles, the three sets of triangles. Like, let's just put them in a circle. And so we were talking to a contractor in Japan, took a while because we're like we had to translate everything and coordinate during a pandemic and our recording session got postponed and all this stuff but eventually got an ensemble in a very large studio with ultrasonic microphones we worked with a great engineer there mary shinohara who uh, did a lot of engineering for ghost of tsushima and a bunch of other projects and instead of this triangle we put them in a circle around an ambisonic microphone and an array of ultrasonic microphones at 192k plus we had a bunch of like um older microphones you know some 47s 67s and to capture that vintage vibe too and so that was like all the source material we were starting with and uh thank apple for mac pros because i put like 40 tracks multi-track gagaku and like probably two hours worth of content in one logic session working at 192k nice three four hundred tracks worth and i could just edit right in there so rather than having to like mix things down and so i was able to work with the multi-track all these vintage microphones and all these ultrasonic stuff and i did with the with the ambisonic i ended up putting it into like this panner in one part of the game uh, it's a track called echoes of yomi it's actually spiraling slowly around the listener's head it's so, like at this point it's a part of the game where you're going down and down and down and down in this circle i was like all right let's try and make people sick And so when we're talking about like electronics, it's not just synthesizers and waveforms and distortion pedals, but it's, it's anything that's in that tool bucket that can be grabbed and applied in you know, a tactful way, not just for the sake of doing it. That's, that's, for me, that's where the money's at. That's what I love doing. And so being able to, to lean into the concept even more and just go go the extra yard at least four or five extra times at every step of this project just just asking like how can you go farther how can you do more how can this go a little bit deeper that was the most fun for me i think that whole exploration of technology applied to uh such a historic piece of of music history in japan um to present it in a way that literally no one period has ever heard of before and i'm confident 
I, I would bet money, but I could also lose this money. But it might be the highest fidelity recording of a Gagaku ever. So that that's also kind of cool to think about how we cataloged a little bit of history. And that's why we released all those recordings on the soundtrack, because like, why not? Why not expose people to the source content that was so inspiring to us? That's super cool. So as you were writing this, uh, what track did you tackle first? Was there a main theme or was there another track that kind of provided inspiration for the overall tone? Yeah, you know, I think some of those early demos, um, some of them got adapted into the game. Some of them were just very exploratory. We didn't, we didn't get into the weeds too much worrying about themes Mm-hmm. Um, there were just some like percussive stuff and I actually think one became the boss theme for chapter two for Satatame. But for the, the actual like bulk of the writing, um, we started with themes, but instead of writing a theme for the game, um, because the, the game very much so gives players agency um, once once kind of the setting is there and we've gone through some of the exposition, it allows the players to choose duty, uh, fury, or love and how you respond to uh, parts in the game. And so that was kind of it. It's like, okay, instead of having a theme, it's it's kind of giving a theme to the character to players as they they make their decisions through the game. So we decided on a theme for love. theme for duty theme for fury Each of those has kind of its own its own little puzzle box. And then ultimately the, the main overarching idea of the game is balance. Finding a combination of all of these things to create a, a balanced, um, you know, I guess, a, a, a vibe feeling character. And that represents Hiroki, our main character. He's looking to acquire balance. And so um, the balance theme is just kind of a combination and a flirtation of all these other themes. But um, we thought about these themes pretty carefully because uh, these, these were the first pieces that we wrote and they were going to set the tone for the rest of the game. And I think it's always a smart idea if you have strong kind of plot or characters or something like that to start with a core base of themes to, to start from to kind of create some cohesion, right? So we really approached it similar to what I was saying before. It's what would make sense for this character. So we have Senjudo, which is kind of the sensei, Hiroki's uh, sensei in the game. Uh, he represents duty. And, and you can think of duty and honor. And so a big part of him is um, he's very powerful. He's, he's very capable. But as, as the, the protector of this village and Hiroki's sensei, he's, he embodies control. So the idea was like, how do you, what's power and how do you present that in a control? So we tried to think very like semiotically where you have a, like a big taiko drum and 
you can bang on it all day long, but that's the expectation is that someone would hit a big drum very hard. And so it, we tried to do the opposite, which is like playing it softly. So you're in the presence of power, but it's like the restraint that's very moving. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, we did that. We used like a shakuhachi with him too, where in a range that's very comfortable because again, control, he's always about like taking a breath, right? That's a common theme throughout the whole game is take a breath and focus and control yourself. Um, then with Aiko, we used sweeter sounding instruments. Of course, the koto is known. Um, you know, a lot of young girls are taught koto at a young age, and it, it's it's more of like an instrument used to to as, as like a learning tool, right? Like music is a, is a learning tool and kind of brain elasticity and stuff. So often, a lot of young girls were taught koto, so that was an instrument to lean into here and use like some some sweeter sounding commoner flutes, like the shinobue there, and then. For Kegeru, it was very much so about leaning into those instruments used for Senjudo's theme, for duty, but then completely perverting them and pushing them to their extreme. So we're playing drums loud and we're overblowing shakuhachi to get kind of the distorted, overblown sound out of it. And and we're, we included shamisen there. And we're like I said, it's very percussive and transient. We're beating on shamisen so it's pushing those instruments all of those instruments as far as possible to represent kind of the complete perversion imbalance more or less for for kigeru the the villain of the game fury is his theme um so that that's kind of where we started and that was really hard um and we spent a lot of time on those with leonard benciari the creative director of the game really to define what this game would sound like and to create kind of the musical language and educational materials for the players um, cause whenever, you know, this is such a, a unique score and unique palette of instruments, we wanted to make sure that we could teach them, like, when you hear this, this is how you should feel. And so we didn't break those rules, right? I, I mentioned before, like you make your rules and you stick to them. And I think that that's generally a recipe for success because, um, or as long as you stick your, to your rules, you can you can break them when you want, want to. to as long yeah. As, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, you're not ignorantly breaking them, and um, so that was very powerful to lean into that. So when you hear shakuhachi and these soft drums, like, oh, Sanjuro's around. And a lot of people do that, and I think it's very effective. So we were defining parameters about how to inform players and how to kind of create dramatic devices musically for the game. And then after that, it was just like, all right, let's go nuts with taiko drums and time stretching things. And, and eventually we got there, but yeah, it was not, not easy. Very, very hard. And writing music sounds easy. Very hard. Yeah. Writing in general, very hard. Yeah. (laughs) Being creative, not easy. Not easy, no. Very hard. <laughs> um, so was there a cue that you were most pleased with? I mean, especially after writing the music and then putting it into the hands of the musicians and saying, uh, you know, how can we make this better? Was there a cue that you were most pleased with the way that it turned out? Yeah, there's a couple that I really like. And man, that's that's weird to say. Rarely do I actually like my own music, but I'm I'm proud of where they ended up. One is track 14 on the record called Dancing Blades.
it's a piece that and kind of I was mentioning earlier is was written then we recorded it and then I had players jam on it with everything else muted and it was interesting to hear the way the players interpreted these rhythms and some of the the like melodic phrases and kind of riffs that I had had kind of come up with and it, it was interesting where I, like I had written it I think in like 120 bpm and had these taiko rhythms and we recorded some shamisen at 120 and then when I had muted the shamisen and played it back Jamie uh, Jamie Lowe our shamisen player here in town uh, he was just kind of jamming on ideas. He started playing like a triplet feel over it. And I'm like, that's strange. And I was like, okay, well, what happens if like I mute the drums, like just listen to it, let's mute the drums and let's put a click up for 180. And so he jammed at 180 because like he couldn't, because the, dr the drums were at like 120, and, but he was feeling like a triplet, but because of the accents, it was like hocketing, right? It was, it was difficult for him. So I put up a click at 180, and so he jammed at 180, and I just took all of that, and I went back to my computer. I was like, okay, team, like, I know you approved this demo, but just let me, let me just do something else with this for a second. And so I ended up, like, superimposing performances at 120 and 180. So I think in that track, anything that's not drums is at 180. Um, and so, like, these phrases are doubling back on each other at different times and it creates this really strange chaotic thing it's not necessarily quote unquote very traditional Edo period but i think for this one um, piece of combat music where you like fall into a building and you're surrounded by people attacking you it was super effective to have these differing um like tempos and performances all happening at once where it's almost like the drums are on one side and shamisen are another and they're fighting each other so that was like a cool exploratory thing that that happened um and then also track 41 it's called echoes of yomi We were recording at the village again, but we were recording in Studio D this time. The Studio A just wasn't available, sorry. <laughs> and um, we're, it's a bigger room, which is cool because we were recording some of the stuff later in the game, so it had, had more room sound. And when we're in there, the engineer we were working with at the time, well, the studio assistant was said, oh yeah, there's a reverb chamber in the back. I'm like, how come no one told me about that? Let's go. Let's go explore what that's all about. And it's a pretty small, weird-shaped room, and so um, it didn't sound doesn't sound awesome. But I was like, that's perfect. Like I don't want it to sound like this amazing-sounding reverb chamber. And so you know, anything we're recording, we pass to the reverb chamber. So we had this great reverb track for all this Koto stuff. And then at the end of the session, I was like, you know, I just wrote this insane piece of music. Um, what if we just like put the percussion stem just ran it through the reverb chambers to see what happens like okay sure so we ran it through and it sounded awesome i was like ah, what if we take that that recording and put it through the reverb chamber yeah and so we we did that and then i was like all right well what if you took the incoming signal and you fed it back into the reverb chamber, like 20 percent so now we have like we're feeding it back through and we have a little bit of a feedback loop and that sounded great. I'm like, okay, let's do that to every stem. So we had, I think I had a breakout of like 10 stems. So we passed every stem of that cue through this reverb chamber with like a 20% feedback. And we took a, some of those stems 
and we passed it through the reverb chamber at 20% feedback. And I did that like six or seven times. And we ended up with the most insane sounding like hellscape that came from a Gagaku at some point. And it was such, so insane sounding. Uh, for the last pass, um, we had like recorded a bunch. We're like, okay, we're, we want to play it through one more time, but I want to like, I want to be in the room. And I just want to lay in the floor and just <laughs> let this like swirling hellscape over, like just overwhelm me. And um, so the whole team, um, my engineer and some producers, uh, my company and, and uh, my assistant and some other people, we all just sat on the floor, just like letting this, I don't know, I mean, like eight, nine times reamped with feedback every single time. And you could hear the room. It like stopped sounding like music and just started sounding like this very metallic ambience. And you would have these big bass hits and these reverb tails that lasted like a minute long and just all this insane stuff. Um, and so we recorded that. It was such an incredible experience. And then I took all those stems and I went back to the sound team at, at Flying Wild Hog and I was like, Arthur is the audio director and sound designer on it. And I was like, what do you think of this? He's like, this is amazing. What did you do? And I'm like, just use this wherever you want. I'm going to mix these like into, into that track because this is the, this is the bottom of Yomi before you fight the final boss in chapter six. This is the, the deepest, most perverted like kind of music you'll ever hear in the game so i'm gonna of course put that in but like go go nuts man like we recorded all that stuff at 192 as well awesome so we have, i have like all this insane material um so that was one of my favorite moments on this game that was a result of just like embracing the technology and uh, like i i would have never known to do that if i didn't have the background in like industrial music and sound design and um but also stemming from this source material of such an ancient ancient form of music i mean 700 come on like like the 700s 800s uh that's insane so it's like 1200 year old music being absolutely destroyed by you know some punk 30 year old <laughs> and um in the year 2022 or 2021 uh it, it's just such a cool combination of weird things and uh such a fun and fascinating experience to to do that even though it's not something that was part of the original plan but just kind of happened um really fun really interesting so with film you can score a picture but with a game you're kind of in a bubble for a little while before you actually you know get to experience what your music feels like in the game yeah uh, so you know when you first saw this come together um, you know when you got to play the final game what kind of surprised you about hearing your score with these visuals and being in this game experience yeah so that's definitely an experience that I had a lot on some of my other the other games I worked on so in Devil May Cry Resident Evil where we don't have playable builds you're you're kind of brought in in you know this very transitory moment where like hey we need music now thanks we don't need music anymore you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, and, you're, and you're and you're done you're like cool thanks for bringing me along for this small part of the ride and so for this we were there moments after it was conceived right and all the way through its development and so we were actually on beta builds the entire time. And I had I had milestone builds, I had daily builds, I had beta builds and alpha builds. And so every day if I fired up the game, I could 
I could see updates. Um, and there was a time period where at least twice a week I would fire up the game, see what it looks like, because things are changing rapidly as we're kind of working on it with them. And we did approach it a little bit differently than normal games because this is very cinematic and it feels like a six-hour movie. It doesn't feel so much like, hey, let me play chapter three, four times so I can like take notes about implementation and ideas. And But like, let me just sit down and play this. It's like watching the Titanic. It's two VHS back-to-back yeah. or it, whatever, whichever one you, you resonate with more. <laughs> and um, I, I think it was successful because that's really how we approached it. We would we'd do spotting. You know, it's, if you, unless you really explore and you, you play on a really hard difficulty, you kind of progress through the game at a fairly consistent rate. And so we were able to watch a gameplay and go, okay, you know, the player might play through this and it might take two minutes. So, like, let's write an amount of music where it doesn't feel like it's just constantly looping. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a six-hour gameplay thing, but we wrote two, almost two and a half hours of music. So rarely do you hear that loop point. And even when you do, we often took like alternate takes of recordings and added them as subtracks inside of FMOD. So on that loop back, you had a different Shamisen performance. And so it never... You never were like, ah, there's the loop. There's a new drum hit. We had all of these alternate and and a variety of different takes and performances that we implemented to to make it feel a little more organic. So it's a it was a much different experience than that traditional experience of like, hey, we need music. Thanks. See you later. Um, but it was like, no, we're relying on you to make sure this game delivers on the music and that the music is a tool for this game and that you know your vision, your shared vision that you had brought with the creator, Leonard, to this project helps deliver on the overall experience, which is totally unique. It's nothing I've ever experienced before, um, which which was a whole new level of kind of creative exploration where um, that we, we were able to do for this. So very much so, I, I saw the game week in and week out change. And from the place it started to the place it ended, very different, very different places, but we were able to be like adapting the music or following those changes or if something drastic happened, we could kind of respot just, just like you would in a film, right? You, you have a cut change, you need to make decisions about where your conform is and we lost three frames over here, but we gained a minute here. How are we going to adjust? And, you know, we didn't necessarily have time code, but I could play it and go, okay, this section of the game feels longer. We need another piece here. We need to extend it. The stakes are risen right here, and originally it wasn't, so we need to we need to match that. So let's add, you know, another section, like a B section to this piece. So we have um, another little moment here to score that before it passes on to this new segment. So it was very organic, very um, very fluid. And in that sense, like I kind of felt like a game developer. It was kind of it's kind of it's kind of fun instead of just being like a, a composer who is, you know, that oftentimes it feels like we're kept at arm's length. It's like you're important, but you're not that <laughs> important, you know. Uh, but it, it felt like being on part of the team, which was so cool and very very rewarding. Before we uh, wrap this up, let's talk about the OST. Where can people find this, and is it on vinyl? Oh, it's funny you ask. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, it just got announced. We'll, it's going to be on vinyl uh, with with Laced, Laced Records is 
pressing the vinyl for Devolver. You can pre-order the vinyl now on Devolver's store on their website. Soundtrack is also available um, wherever you consume digital music, um, whether it is Spotify or Apple Music or Tidal or Amazon. I could keep going. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's anywhere you could listen to it. It's quite long, and if you're ever, I don't know, if you ever just feel like being in a bad mood, put it on, and then you'll <laughs> you'll listen to the the hellscapes of of Japanese underworld, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's it's everywhere you can listen to digital music, and vinyl is available for pre order now through Devolver's store. Awesome. Well, Cody, thank you so much for this interesting conversation about the score on Trek to Yomi. I really appreciate you sharing your time and your story with me. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, having me on and. Converting this to a podcast at the last moment. <laughs> yeah, no problem, man. Totally <laughs> flexible. <laughs> awesome. A big thanks to Cody Matthew Johnson and to Jennifer Walden for the interview. We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Hear more from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. That's it for this episode. Thanks a lot for listening, and see you next time. Take care. <laughs>